Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Nate Trunfio. This week, we have Mr. Jack Krupe on the line with JCAM Investments, a capital raise aficionado, a ton of experience in distressed debt to active investing himself. We cover a plethora of topics all the way from raising capital, the numerous structures you can do at GP and LP, some of the targeted yields that each side requires and requests, as well as is it easier or harder to do so. We'll, we'll dabble a little bit into some of Jack's background on distressed debt, look at his crystal ball on what to expect here upcoming. And then lastly, Jack lives in Puerto Rico. So why and what are some of the advantages of doing so? Let's get right into the action now. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. We have a good friend of mine, Jack Krupe, in the house today. Um, Jack's been investing in real estate and distressed debt since 2001. He's been an asset manager for a private equity firm with $3 billion plus of non-performing and re-performing loans. Super knowledgeable in the realm of debt, but also in the realm of operating and equity investing. I consider you, Jack, the uh, capital raise of aficionado. And I really always appreciate you know your network and your knowledge base because it's very wide. And I'm excited to, to share that with our listeners here today. So Jack, man, welcome to the Real Estate of Things. Nate, it's great to be here. Well, let's get her started, brother. So um, I want to start with what you're doing right now. So JCAM, break that down for us. Uh, what are you currently doing? And take it from there. So uh, JCAM has two, we manage two different funds that are Regulation D 506C. So uh, we're, we work with accredited investors and we primarily co-invest into apartment complexes with a little bit of self-storage and other syndicate asset class. But our core is to buy a 100 to 300 unit tired apartment building, maybe built in 1975, 1980, 1990, but just a building that's not, you know, it's not necessarily distressed like it's 80% vacant, but just it's a little bit old and tired and the prior ownership, uh, you know, wasn't uh, really renovating or raising rents or, or getting all of the value out of the building. So we focus on value add apartment buildings and these are generally buildings that we're buying well below replacement cost because it's really with current interest rates, current construction costs, it's really difficult to build a, a new apartment complex uh, unless it's a very high end, what we call a class A. So we take the class B or class C plus, renovate it unit by unit over the course of a few years. And when you're buying at a 5% cap rate, as an example, if you can raise rents three to $400 a month on a renovated unit, that's almost $5,000 a year. And at a 5% cap rate, that's almost 100,000 in increased value for perhaps a 10 or $15,000 unit renovation. So when you compare that to a single family house where you know very rarely are you putting 15,000 in and, and raising the value by 100, it, it can happen in certain markets, but I, I think that's uh, um, you know, a difficult task. So um, that's, that's our primary business and we focus heavily on the capital side. These are large deals where you're raising sometimes 10 million or $15 million. And we work with a number of partners and by pooling money together in a syndication, we can uh, generally get better deal terms because we're part of a syndication and part of a syndicate. And if you're writing a check for a half a million dollars, you get better deal terms than if you're just kind of going in yourself for 25 or 50,000. So that's really where JCAM functions. Uh, sourcing, we've got a number of trusted partnerships. I've been doing this uh, a long time personally before we started it as a business and uh, even with interest rates moving, it's been uh, a really good run the last couple of years. Awesome, man. Well, a lot to sort of di dive into there. And so where I want to start is like, can you just break down a little bit more 
how sort of co-invest in syndications that you do for yourselves and, and for others, uh, like break that down in a little bit more, more detail. Sure. So, um, you know, a typical syndication, um, there's a general partner and then there's limited partners and the general, the general partner typically takes a promoted interest or, you know, a percentage of the profits that's higher. Once they've actually successfully completed the project, they've returned all investor capital and then the profits generally get split. It could range from 50, 50 to 90, 10, but I would say 70%, 30% with 70% going to the passive investors, the limited partners, and generally 30% of the profits going to the general partner. And there's typically also a preferred return that's paid. Um, it's not debt. It's not kind of guaranteed to pay an exact amount quarterly, but it does accrue. So that may range from five to 12% with seven or 8% being, I'd say average. And uh, what that means is if a passive investor puts in $100,000 and the project takes one year, they would, if it's an 8% preferred return, they would need to get paid back $8,000 at the end of the year, plus have a return of their 100,000 of capital before the general partnership gets any of the profit sharing, that 70-30 split. Now, realistically, these deals tend to take three to five years. And often the first year or two, there's not enough cash flow because you know, you're focused on renovation. So in that scenario, on that same 100,000, you may accrue over three years, $24,000 in, in payments that need to be paid. So then you need to get back your 100,000 plus your 8% annual before the sponsorship makes any, any money. And the way JKM fits into that is we, if we're bringing in a larger check, we may be able to negotiate an 80-20 split instead of a 70-30 split, which uh, just means that we, we, have, we make more money ourselves. Or in the other scenario, we're actually part of the GP and we're a co-GP, meaning we actually get paid on the sponsorship side. And we sometimes bring our investors along uh, through our, our through our diversified fund, we actually bring our investors along and any of those fees and any of that profit sharing we get actually goes into our fund. So our investors get to participate with us on the co-GP side of the deal, which is a really powerful investment strategy. No, so that, that's awesome. And uh, I just appreciate you breaking it down from sort of as high of a level as you can, because this stuff gets complicated quick for most of you listening in. Um, so really interested on this perspective because it, I always found it unique that you're raising money on in an LP component, but also in a co-GP component. So how do you look as a, as a fund manager, asset manager of funds that can do both? Uh, how do you look at deals or opportunities as an LP versus a co-GP? Like what's the differentiator for you, man? Yeah. So, you know, when we got started, you know, when I first started, I was just an LP. I, I still was working, uh, you know, for, I still owned a piece of a, a private equity fund that was buying distressed loans. And you know, I had a non-compete. I couldn't buy loans myself because uh, it would be a conflict of interest. So, um, and I'd been a landlord. I'd done a lot of single family. I didn't have the time or the bandwidth that I was living in New York City. And this, this uh, just, it was, there was no place for that for me. So I started investing passively into multifamily syndications with uh, a guy I knew from uh, Long Island, New York that was buying down in, in North Carolina and in, in South Carolina. So uh, I just started as an LP and it was really uh, a lot of just networking. Uh, the first uh, group I invest with, with, invested with was someone I knew from like a New York City real estate investment club over a number of years, followed, you know, got on his email list, followed along, met him for coffee a few times. And, uh, you know, he's probably on his fifth or sixth deal before I threw in 50,000. 
and uh, you know th things went well. And then uh, I joined a lot of organizations. Um, you know, I did in a few deals uh, with other people I met through through clubs. But as I am speaking right now, I'm actually in Cabo San Lucas for a real estate mastermind that uh, it actually starts in a few days. I came a few days early. Um, but yeah, I've spent you know well over six figures joining uh, mastermind organizations that are generally twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year to join. And there's a lot of really strong operators that are there to network. And there's that whole saying, iron sharpens iron. So, um, you know, uh, the groups that we invest with are, are, are highly vetted. Um, you know, very rarely are we, well, there, there's not been a case where I've gotten like an email about a, just a random deal and just invested with it. You know, we're investing with groups that have strong track records where we know there are other investors and, um, you know, that, that just, uh, they're not coming off the street. No, awesome, man. Being a, a lending nerd myself, if you will, uh, which I hope you don't mind, I'll call you one too. Um, it, it's it's easy. It's very easy to then put on that sort of lending credit mindset to then analyze a, a partner that you'll invest your money in because it's almost a, you know the same thing if you're lending a credit versus you know taking a, an LP position. So I'm sure that's an, a natural knack for you to do a, a very diligent due diligent process on uh, who you would invest your money alongside. Um, and so, so then hit me on the, the co-GP. So like at what point in time, you know, would you and Jcam take a co-GP position? Um, is it more because of just the, the sort of desired requests and the capital needs from the GP operator, uh, they, they need maybe more money and you take LP and co-GP or is it more because, you know, a, a, you finding a deal or how, how does the co-GP element like differentiation come into play? Yeah, so it, it it really depends on the scenario, and a lot of it has to do with how much how much money is being brought into the deal, and, and also it's you know even even if on one specific deal we're not writing million dollar checks, um, we're we're a programmatic investor. You know, we have groups that we've invested in six or seven deals with, so they know that you know, and and most of the time, you know, these are groups that you know we've already vetted, had a lot of success with already, and uh, you know they've got a good eye for finding new deals, so. You know, a majority of the new deals that they that they find, you know, we, we think pretty much the same way, and then they 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 know what to bring to us. So uh, we do get some credit in some cases just for being a consistent investor. And uh, part of the CoGP is just getting better terms. Um, often, you know, the legal docs are what they are, and uh, you know, off you know, sometimes there's different share classes where if you put in over two hundred fifty thousand, you get a little bit better deal. But in in a way, the way to really negotiate better terms you know, is to, to be a co-GP and be a partner in a deal and, and get a piece of the fees, which actually works out to, to be a fee rebate uh, in, in some ways, because at least for our diversified fund, we actually put those fees into the fund itself. So, you know, we do charge some of our own fees. So in a way it, it offsets, um, you know, most, or in, in some cases, all of our fees, uh, if the deal outperforms and we're getting a piece of the carried interest, um, we, we may do better than if uh, a passive investor put 50,000 directly in without any of the, the fees. So, so we do it in a few different ways. Number one is just to make sure that we're being fee conscious to our own investors that, you know, there's no reason for, for them to give us money if we're just going to blindly put it in passively. And, um, although diversification is worth something, but yeah, we, we want to add that extra value. And then, and the other aspect of it is just to, to have a seat at the table to get uh, you know a little bit more insighted reporting than say you know a random dentist or doctor who's just putting fifty thousand in, um, just because because we're consistently investing and we're really and they do value our opinion and they you know even even just advising on what's happening kind of in the market and and 
what you know what the investor appetite might be at the moment because a lot has changed over the last year or two even with uh you know investor appetite i think there's a uh, more of a a push for current cash flow and a little less for appreciation after after what's happened with rates and uh and yeah you know, certain deals are not really distributing what they originally had thought just because of uh you know the five point move in interest rates over the last year make some good insights and it makes sense again i i think it's uh great and cool and unique as well that you sort of have that opportunity to invest in those numerous capacities, depending on a number of different variables. And, you know, as you listen to this and and hoping you understand it, but to to break some down more is, you know, GP who takes a more active role in the management responsibilities and and rights, assuming all things go right, you should get paid for that work, right? Whereas an LP is passive and, you know, it's more fixed returns because you're just sort of the capital partner on the deal. And so again, it, 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 as you listen to what Jack just said there, um, you know you, it, it's an, a way to enable yourself to earn some more yield for you in, in the fund as as a GP versus LP. I think at the end of what you just said there, I really want to get into this topic of things have changed. So in regards to sort of just expected yield and returns in any realm of sort of LP or GP uh, sides of, of, of a deal, what has changed over the last year? We're in the almost the middle of 2023. What, what's gone on in the market and how has that affected? Well, we know what's gone on in the market. How has that affected sort of the, the capital raise and yield side? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely uh, a, a lot of fear in the market right now from passive investors, uh, you know, because there's been some headlines about bridge loans on and bridge loans on this large multifamily are, um, you know, a little different than bridge loans on the uh, kind of single family fix and flip. Um, you know, bridge on multifamily, the, the typical way up until a few years ago is most people would go in with five-year fixed rate debt and there were maybe more seven or 10-year fixed rate debt and there were substantial prepayment penalties. So if you wanted to sell early or if you wanted to refi, you were really stuck and it was very inflexible. Uh, the benefit though was it was largely a fixed rate for the entire term. Um, what, what's, what's become more prevalent in the last a few years was bridge loans and bridge loans had variable rate debt but they also had the ability to purchase insurance for an interest rate cap and most uh up until a year year and a half ago you know rates so, uh sofer which is based at what, what basically was LIBOR and is being replaced by sofor which is pretty much tied to the fed funds rate um so when you when you see the headlines about the fed raising at 25 basis points sofer pretty much moves 25 basis points as well so those loans were tied to SOFR and were with, with a spread. So they were essentially only a few percent interest rate. Then investors bought a cap where if it went up 3%, it basically couldn't go up more than 3% over the, you know, over the life of the, the cap, which was usually three years. And what happened over the last year is all of those loans hit the interest rate caps within, within, you know, nine months. So um, deals that were expecting to pay a 5% current you know, uh, return each year just off of the the rents that were coming in, all of that extra money got eaten up by interest rates. And in some select cases for operators that were, you know, didn't buy an interest rate cap, you know, there, there were deals that now had negative cash flow. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're fortunate across 30 plus deals. Uh, you know, we have, you know, very, very few, there's maybe one or two deals that, uh, you know, cash flow is any sort of a concern. The remainder, it's just, there's enough cash to pay the mortgages and the property management and insurance, but there's probably not going to be distributions until rates drop or until we sell or refinance. Now, yeah, you may ask now, why bother with bridge? Um, yeah, two two key factors here. Number one is 
there's no prepayment penalties. So if you're getting into that value add where you're going to be spending $10,000, $12,000, $15,000 to renovate the apartment and generate 100000 in value, you want the ability to sell at the appropriate time. Or, or basically, it's the Burr model uh, just on larger deals. You, know, you buy, renovate, refinance, uh, return some capital, and, and repeat. So um, that, that's the one benefit. The other benefit is these bridge loans will lend you on the construction proceeds, very similar to uh, single family. So you can, if you have a few million dollar renovation budget, you could renovate those units. Then that cash can be drawn on the line of credit. So it means you have to raise less money, which you know generally increases all the investor returns because you just have, you don't have to raise the extra few million dollars of renovation. So there are some benefits of bridge loans, but some people, um, you know, there's certainly some operators that have some challenges currently, and that that's definitely affected cash flow. Um, the good news is, and you know, when Silicon Valley Bank failed, um, you know, it's, I guess never good news when a, a company fails, and you know, some people sure lost their jobs. But um, that day, the five-year and the ten-year dropped significantly. I think almost half a percent. And the the logical takeout for these syndication deals is more likely to sell to a family office or a longer-term holder. So most of the end buyers, once the buildings are more stabilized are going to use five and 10 year debt. So the good news for the syndication industry is that five year and 10 year is significantly lower than where the Fed funds rate is. And that that really drives where cap rates go and where overall returns will be uh, for the multifamily space. No, it's, um, we've seen a lot of this start to play out. And I think, uh, unfortunately, there's, there's more of it that is bubbling up under the surface that we'll continue to see. And I think it's more important than ever that you know, sponsors who've raised money and syndicated or through syndications and have some variable rate uh, bridge debt, regardless of cap or not, uh, you know, you got to be able to crush your original business plan and execute the the days of just, you know, on the single family side, waiting for HPA to sort of rise all ships or compressing cap rates, doing the same thing in, in multifamily uh, probably is not here uh, to bail anybody out in that in that regard. And so execution is is key. When you started off, you said, you know, um, LP, you know, and sort of raising money, there's a lot more fear in, in people doing that. So would you say um, for the average, you know, syndicator or person raising money, is it easier or harder raising capital today, middle of 2023 versus, you know, before some of this has evolved, call it, you know, early half of 2022? I think it's gotten easier in the last six months. The, the second half of 2022 is very, very difficult. So it's definitely easier than the second half of 2022. I don't think it's as easy as 2021, sort of post-COVID. There was a period of time where, you know, there was, I, I hate to, was it the old, uh, is, it, is this Alan Greens fan that talked about irrational exuberance or something? Uh, I don't know if it got to that level, but, you know, there there was generally an optimism. There was, um, you know, just oh, the stock market was booming. Um a lot of people got, you know, PPP money or various other money. So I think there's a lot of money floating around and people looking for, for returns. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, a, a good run. Um, you know, I think, uh, for that six months of 2020, people were just scared. You'd see a headline on CNBC about just real estate crash or this, that. And, and, and I think, uh, I think people have sort of, uh, you know, starting to come to the new normal right now. And as someone who you know was on Wall Street in 2008 during the financial crisis, I I don't foresee any sort of residential 
crisis this time around. There's just too many people on the single family market that locked in. Um, you know, I, I, I'd read a stat that I think roughly 40% of homeowners don't have a mortgage. I mean, there's just a lot of, of boomers and senior citizens who just have their houses paid off. And then another 30% locked below 4%. So that's, and there's been a lot of new articles recently. There, there's just supply that's just not going to move unless they're extremely motivated, like a life event. There's people that might've treated up two years ago that, you know, why bother or treat it down? Yeah, you, know, you could have a 5,000 square foot house and maybe your kids are out of, out of the house now and you would have bought a townhouse, but why, why sell and pay a 6% interest rate if you locked in at 2.8% on your, your big house, you're just better off uh, staying put another couple of years. So that is what I see will stabilize the residential market. And that trickles down into the multifamily apartment market because yeah, we're we're especially focused on workforce housing. So these are you know maybe median income ninety thousand um, dollars. You know it's the you know the people that would have been maybe first time home buyers, but those those people are priced out for now. So that actually bodes reasonably well for apartments. Now you know commercial office space, uh, it's going to be a dumpster fire. Um, you know it, it'll work itself out, but it's not something that I see is going to become a contagion to to the industry. And I don't think it affects multifamily um, negatively. And uh, the other point is um, the banking side. Um, fortunately, you know, you've got a lot of uh, private lenders, you know, including you know groups like you that, that, that play in, in some scale of the multifamily, but even on the larger scale. And you have the the government entities, Fannie, Freddie, HUD, as well as a number of publicly traded companies. So, uh, multifamily lending, at least in the areas we've played, is not really. There was not a lot of regional banks competing for. Um, the, the types of loans on the buildings that that we've invested in. So I feel pretty good that there'll still be continued lending liquidity for for this uh, the syndication space as well. Yeah, I mean, being on the lending side, I, I certainly agree with you. It's uh, being a private lender as well. We've seen a lot of competition over the last two, three years from regional banks doing things that you would have never expected them to do on similar asset investment strategies that, that you may be in, but that certainly is dissipating now and you see a lot of headlines on tightening of credit. So some really good perspective there. I'd be interested in this question for you too. So, um, you know, there's a mix of it's easier, it's harder to raise money, and it, it it's you know depending on what you're gauging and comparing it to. But what what do you think uh, is is there a differentiation because of maybe as you talked about some possible more fear of investors? Like what what has happened to LP investors specifically? Um, you know, yield and return expectations. Um, I don't want to give you any of the answer, but so help me with that one. Yeah, so I, I think a couple different things have happened. You know, number one is up until two years ago, there was no, you know, there was really no yield if you had money sitting in an account. I mean, the fact that you can get 5% on a 12-month treasury, I mean, it has caused some investors to just look at, uh, you know, hey, I can make 5%. You know, do I do I need to, you know, when, when it was zero versus an 8% pref and the chance to make 20% plus, you know, IRR, you know, it's an easy, you know, that was, that was an easy sell. I think for some investors, you know, depending on, on just what their mentality is in the moment there, you know, they see a 5% and their first thought is, oh, I can make 5% risk-free. And, uh, you know, I, I would argue it's not really risk-free because, you know, inflation is, you know, at least what they publish is still 5%. But, you know, if you, if you follow, there's a website called Shadow Stats, which shows how they used to calculate inflation. And uh, it's usually at least double if you use the way they've they've uh, calculated inflation in the 1980s. Um, and that you know, there's investors that just 
yeah, I mentioned they see real estate headlines. There's investors that just have that fear of, you know, is real estate going to crash? Is there going to be another 2008? So there's a, a lot of discussions, uh, you know, about that and really just, you know, where I think multifamily, especially on the workforce side, you know, is still, um, you know, a, a safer way to invest and still has some upside. And, and lastly, it's like the interest rate fear. Um, you know, I, I tell investors that, um, even some investors that maybe did invest into a deal in 2021 and now they're, you know, somewhat stuck. They're not getting distributions that they might have expected. And 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 hopefully, I mean, I think largely the deals will still work out where they'll still make uh, you know, make a, a good return because most of the return has always been on the back end of these deals. It was really from the renovation and the exit, not from the you know, five percent or eight percent at most from the rents. It was the raising the value by a hundred thousand per unit over fifty to hundred units. So, uh, just talking through, you know, unless rates go to ten or twelve percent or fifteen percent like the nineteen eighties, which, you know, if that's the case, I mean, the government where the government debt is right now, I mean, there's there's a whole there's a whole another slew of problems. Like everybody, everybody's in deep trouble if that happens. So, unless you know, if you really think that doomsday scenario is happening, you know, buy some gold coins, bury them in your backyard, and buy some guns, and you better just fill up on guns and ammo as an investment. But assuming that's not the case, um, you know, getting in now to me is the is probably the safest time to to get in. And there's some upside if rates do even drop another point. There's there could be some significant upside on interest rates just you know normalizing to you know if the the ten year you know gets into the twos, um, you know the five year drops you know somewhere high twos low threes. I mean that that's just a normal gets back to normal where. That's where REITs have been on and off for the last 10 or 15 years. And the market will function um, yeah, pretty well at that point with you know consistent returns. So um, yeah, those are the main fears um, that, yeah, that, that have come up in recent months. Definitely agree. And I think um, you know, the, the amount and sort of the ease of raising capital definitely you know, differs based on opinions and, and what you're looking to do. But you also have just the sheer um, you know, like you talked about, influx of, of capital infused throughout the the nation through post pandemic times, and now with inflation continuing or continued to surge, people, you know, one of my big concerns in general is affordability, but people's discretionary, you know, uh, liquidity is is not quite as viable as it used to be, and you had a lot of people that maybe weren't even potential investors before that were over the last couple of years, and I think a lot, some and a lot of that's gone gone away and, and therefore, you know, investors may think they can drive uh, a demand for a higher yield in their investments. But, um, uh, you know, there's there's still a lot of options and, and opportunity out there. I want to uh, transition a little bit um, because of your, you know, significant experience in, in distressed debt um, in the past. And I know you still always stay uh, close and, and uh, up to date on what's going on there. Like, what's your projection uh, on distressed debt moving forward? What's going to happen, man? I know you got that crystal ball. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's broken at the moment. Uh, it's on the fritz, but uh, um, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so, you know, similar to the, the whole interest rate issue with multifamily, um, I, I think a similar thing, you know, has happened with the the more Wall Street buyers of large pools of distressed debt. Um, there was a point where you could securitize, which was similar to, you know, a cash out refinance, if you will, you, you, you accumulate 100, 150 million of loans, sometimes complete non-performing or a mixture of non-performing and, and performing. And you could sell bonds up to, you know, 80, or if you got a rated 95%, um, essentially loan to value. 
And, you know, that was a cash out refinance and it was fixed rate debt. You know, now that bond market that was two, two and a half percent or, or, or so for the, you know, the seniors or the kind of what would be more like the first mortgage position is going to be 8% now. So I, I think that will it will shake loose some of the remaining loans that may trickle down to, you know, the, you know, non-institutional buyers, if you will. And I know, you know, through some of the groups that we're both in, I know there's a lot of people play on both sides. They, they buy, they buy real estate, they flip houses, and if they can, they buy non-performing loans. So um, right now it's to, I even saw an email today. I think it's, it's slow. We're in that kind of stage where most of these securitizations had, you know, three years, four years before, before the balloon payments, before they had to be sold. Um, and the one thing is instead of, as opposed to like one big multifamily apartment building, you know, these, these portfolios of loans have hundreds of loans or thousands of loans in them. So there is some organic payoff. Um, that's probably less now too, with the rates moving. So I think what may happen is when it gets down to, you know, the chance to either resecuritize or sell, I think more of them may sell and it just may make more sense to, to, you know, distribute them, you know, down into, and that then trickles down from large funds like I used to be at to, you know, there's some more mid-sized funds and some groups we both know. And then it, you know, trickles down to, you know, the mom and pop investor in some cases, especially the lower balance loans and those that are a little more rural. Those are, you know, often a better fit for the smaller, um, the smaller funds. So, um, yeah, with that said, pricing has also changed too. Uh, it used to be that performing loans um, at scale, you could sell them almost at par, 100 cents on the dollar for a performing loan if it be 12 payments. Now, there are many situations where performing loan is actually worth less than a non-performing loan. You know, if it has a 3% or 2.5% interest rate, um, that's a major risk. And even those that are buying, this is the way it was when I first got into the business where you had to price in a reinstatement risk. If, if the borrower came to the table with ten or $15,000 and fully reinstated the loan, now you're stuck with a 3 or 4% loan. You can't get your money out. Um, from 2014, 2015 on, I was like, we, 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 we loved when they reinstated, we'd love to modify and sell them. And now, you know, it's at a point where you need to calculate if you get stuck with a 3% interest rate. Um, I, I don't know that rates ever get down to 3% again, at least, um, at least not in, in any time soon. So, um, yeah, so, so yeah, that's kind of where, where I see, uh, the market and again, there's still a housing shortage. So I, I think, you know, if you do have to take something to foreclosure, as long as it's not, you know, completely destroyed inside. I, I think it's still a pretty liquid market for, for, for exiting, but we always tried to do, if the borrower could stay and pay, uh, we always wanted to, to preserve that. And I still think regardless of where rates are, I, I think, you know, anyone who's investing in the not performing, you know, if, if the borrower has the means and can, can afford it, you know, you're better off modifying and working a deal than, than trying to be unreasonable and pushing the foreclosure, you know, also for legal and, and other, you know, other reasons and for the industry as a whole to, uh, you know, there's, oh, there's always somebody looking to, to give private mortgage investors a bad name. Yeah. I think Elizabeth Warren had something about, you know, inquiries about why, why the government was selling loans to private industry. And, and as someone who was writing that seat, I saw how we were way more efficient at modifying loans, um, than, you know, the bigger, bigger box servicers or where there's very strict government guidelines on you're missing one pay stub and you can't get the deal done. Whereas we can, you know, private investors can look at the overall picture and just you know, make a quick exception of like, yeah, this, this person could absolutely pay. They're missing a pay stub for whatever reason, or their tax return is on extension. And there's, there's all these little things we saw when we buy portfolios of why a prior loan wasn't modified. And it was, 
often just BS, just something that really shouldn't happen and just inefficiencies. Uh, true, true technicalities, and it's, there's a lot of them and a lot of trip wires. So always, always read all your loan docs as a borrower, um, you know, and, and also, you know, as a loan buyer, uh, you got to got to know all sides of what you're buying and and uh, your provisions as well. So it's it's interesting too. I, th- I think it's going to be intriguing to see. You know, there's what a lot of people don't realize. I know you do is that there's been a ton of money, you know, to trillions. Uh, of of capital raised sitting there waiting to invest in distressed opportunities, whether that's hard assets or loans. And so how much does that keep things sort of propped up? Uh, I, I think there could be some benefits to it, but it, it also doesn't allow you to maybe buy loans and even assets at times as deep as you would imagine or as would happen through, you know, the post uh, great financial crisis and GFC. So it, it'll it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But um, you know, I appreciate you, you certainly showing your, your knowledge based on that. And I'm, I'm sure we could probably do a whole episode there alone. I, I want to flip to a last topic, which we, we talked before the show briefly on one very intriguing to me because I'm very fortunate to just come back from Puerto Rico. Uh, but I know you technically live in Puerto Rico. So why do you live in Puerto Rico and walk you know this through the, the basic elements of the benefits of uh, living in Puerto Rico? Yeah, just to be clear, you said I technically live in Puerto Rico. I I actually live in Puerto Rico, just especially in case the IRS is listening. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, yeah. So I I moved down there uh, the end of 2008, and uh, you know I was at a point in my you know life and career where I was in New York, uh, had a very successful fund. I owned a piece of it, and my my K one from owning a piece of the business was more than my salary. And, uh, you know, for, for various reasons, I, I just wasn't happy there, um, you know, in, in the active employment W2 side of it. Uh, yeah, I've always been more of an entrepreneurial person and it, it got to the size and scale where it just, uh, you know, the business had shifted and it was, it was time for me to move on. So I uh, was able to, uh, you know, and as I researched the tax code, there, there's various things. So I'll talk a lot about Puerto Rico, but I also want to highlight because not everyone can take the steps I, I, I took. So, um, you know, one of the things I realized right off the bat was by by leaving as a W-2, I actually could potentially make more money because the moment I left as a W-2, I didn't own a majority of the company. I owned a minority stake. The moment I left as a W-2, all of a sudden, my income from that K-1 was now passive. And I could offset that with the apartment buildings that I was investing in that were generating K-1 losses on paper just from the accelerated depreciation. So um, really, I dedicated the last year or two in New York to just researching the tax code. And you know, it, it's difficult. There's some good CPAs out there, but you, you kind of have to live it. And you know, if a CPA starts making too much money, often they stop being a CPA and they just start being an investor themselves as well. So um, it, it's challenging. So I knew a few people who'd moved to Puerto Rico um, back in 2014, 2015, and sort of followed along with them. And uh, Puerto Rico has a, at the time, it was called Act 20 and Act 22. And now they've uh, they've changed it to Act 60, and so Puerto Rico has these incentives where um, if you move to the island and you run an export services business, which is essentially making money off island, but while you live on the island, they only tax you at four percent. So that's why a lot of hedge funds, a lot of private equity, a lot of consultants, a lot of internet marketing, uh, information product type people have moved down to the island. And, uh, you know, it's incredible because Puerto Rican residents do not pay federal income tax. So it, it's extremely powerful. So I went from paying a 50% tax rate 
in New York to paying a 4% tax rate in Puerto Rico. And there's one additional benefit as well. Um, there's also no short-term or long-term capital gains in Puerto Rico. So there's a lot of stock and option traders and crypto who've moved down there because, um, you know, if you're day trading in, in, you know, in the States, you know, most, if you're a short-term capital gain, it's usually 50%. I mean, there's some futures where it's like a 60, 40 split, but, um, you know, the taxes are, are significant, um, for, for that industry as well. And, uh, yeah, I've been there four years and, you know, while I moved cause the, the tax benefits intrigued me, uh, the reason I'm staying is there's a, an amazing community there. There's thousands of entrepreneurs who've had some level of success to make it worthwhile to move and then a sense of adventure to actually do it. So, um, you know, there's weekly networking events where, you know, and I'm starting to, I've been there four years. So I, I'm actually, you know, it's, it's the, the program's been around for 10, but it's really the last four or so that a lot of people have really flooded down there. So I'm like one of the OGs at this point. I go to these events, I've run into people I know, and there's new people moving every week. So, um, you know, it, it's amazing. It, it's not for everybody. You know, if you have a W-2 for a U.S. company, it doesn't really save you uh, any money under W-2. It really has to be for a business owner. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you're self-employed or you, um, you know, are just looking for an adventure, I'd certainly recommended if, if it fits. Um, I do want to point out that real estate is still taxed in the States. It, well, when it, when it's that 4% thing, it's, um, that is, uh, you yeah, that is export services. Um, Puerto Rico sourced income. So for the stocks, stocks, all that options are Puerto Rico sourced income. Real estate is still taxed where the properties are, but that's still, you know, so essentially you file a U.S. tax return and you file a Puerto Rican tax return. But for me, the main benefit is I don't have a normal job in the U.S., so I have no other U.S. income. All my income in the U.S. is passive, so I'm able to use those tax, uh, the K-1 losses. So my income in the U.S. is, is negligible and, uh, you know, very similar to, you know, any real estate professional in the States who has, um, you know, living primarily off of rental properties. It's, uh, you know, generally, hopefully functions at close to a break-even or, you know, carry forward in the operating loss. Awesome, man. Obviously, you, you, you know, the benefit that you implied, I mean, more important, just the community there, but how beautiful the island is. And as you said, the, the people there and as well. Um, and, and you hit on it because I apologize, my poor choice of words. As you live in Puerto Rico, every, anybody would say like, oh, I'd love to just take advantage of this as, as an entrepreneur with qualifying income that, that can be taxed at 4%. What is the definition of living in Puerto Rico? There's a few different tests from the IRS, and uh, one of them is the, the the actual days. So if you spend 183 days in Puerto Rico, yeah, that meets one of the tests. But th there's also a test called the closer connection test, and that that one is a lot more subjective. And uh, you know, the, the best analogy I can use is you can't get on a plane four days a week from New York or Miami, put put a foot down in Puerto Rico, fly back home, and be like, I was in Puerto Rico. Yeah, 183 days. If your wife, your kid, your dog are all in the States and you're the only one doing it, that, that's not going to pass the closer connection test. So if you're going to do it, you, you really, you really need to commit to do it. It's not, it's, it's way too risky to, to not comply and not, and, and there's so much opportunity on a, on a personal, a social level, the lifestyle to, you know, to, to just to, to do it and, you know, to try to fake it just, just to, just to save some money. So I'd say if it's something, if you're, if you're going to do it, you know, come down, take a, take a couple week vacation 
you know, do do some remote work and 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 test it out. Um, and it's it's not for everyone. It's like ninety percent of the time I agree. There's a Costco, there's a Walmart. A lot of times I feel normal, but yeah, you know, if you think going to the DMV is is bad in your home state, yeah, you know, try to try to get your driver's license in Puerto Rico. Um, yeah, there, there, there there's some intricacies here and there, but there's also a lot of help and there's a lot of there's kind of a new service community dedicated to helping kind of the you know the mainland people moving down too. So there's a lot of kind of expediters, you know, assistance helpers that can deal with some of the some of the government bureaucracy. Awesome, man. Uh, it's um, like you said, it's probably not for everybody, but man, after being in Puerto Rico, it's uh, it's something to, to if your lifestyle and, and your family allows you to do it, it's something to consider. You know, and, and then there's auxiliary tax benefits for those that it, that it applies, but. Uh, Jack, man, we've covered a lot of ground from the mainland to the Puerto Rican islands, um, you know, across investing in hard assets, uh, GPLP, uh, some distressed debt in there. But, man, I just appreciate you dropping your knowledge and, and keeping it at a level uh, that, that our listeners can understand, too, because I know uh, I've tapped your brain and uh, been always impressed with the, the level of knowledge and, and uh, the depth of it as well, man. So, uh Brother, thank you for being uh, uh, here and, and sharing on the real estate of things. And uh, I know I will catch you on the other side, hopefully on the island too. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. And I'd encourage anyone to reach out. Uh, I'm sure you put some info for me in the show notes. Uh, you know, I love nothing more than to strategize and and kind of talk through uh, people's uh, financial situations, help save on taxes, help, uh, you know, move money outside of Wall Street into, you know, into real estate. So, reach, you know, I'd encourage anyone to reach out. I, I love to have these types of chats. Where do they find you, Jack? Sure. So the website is jkminvestments.com. That's J-K-A-M for J-K Asset Management. jkminvestments.com. We're also on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and apparently we have a TikTok account now too, although I haven't done a dance or anything yet, but uh, maybe at some point. I'm going to have to get you to do that. And, and truly, you always are a go-giver with information and knowledge. I mean, I've, I know I've even learned um, you know, about, uh, how to best utilize reward rewards points in the numerous varieties of credit cards out there. And, uh, man, that was an impressive presentation I saw you give. And again, that's just probably one of the many, many, many things that we've talked uh, thank about. You. Brother, thank you. So. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that <laughs> stuff. That could be its own episode too. I actually just, I flew New York to Singapore 18 and a half hours using miles. It would be a $10,000 ticket all for 85,000, uh, I think Chase Sapphire reward, ultimate rewards that I moved over. So, yeah, 18 and a half hours was a was the longest flight I've ever been on so far. So that was doesn't yeah, sound too quite legend. But if you want some 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 information on any any of the above, uh, please find Jack and JKM Investments. Is uh, you you always uh, dropping knowledge and adding value and and uh, just doing good by others, man. So appreciate you, and I uh, will catch you soon. Thanks again for having me. That's a wrap. Thanks again to Jack Krupe from JCAM. This was another great episode where we covered a lot of ground on all things real estate investing. Please make sure that you subscribe and download on your favorite platforms. Every Tuesday, we'll drop a new episode with great guests just like Jack. And all things on the Real Estate of Things, you can always find it on our website, www.realestateofthings.co. We will catch you next week for some more action. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. 
A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.